Before we start this week's podcast, I'd like to ask you a quick favor. If you listen to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, can you take 10 seconds and go and rate the podcast there? Doing so helps listeners like you find podcasts like this one that they might like. And it helps us because more listeners means better podcasts. In your book, you mentioned that a lot of MLAs don't actually review the legislation that's kind of put forward to them, and Mm. they kind of slightly neglect that kind of part of being an MLA. Yeah, more than slightly. Oh, the legislature is not a a body uh, that has the capacity to actually make legislation. You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. This week, we talk about the job nobody wants to talk about, the job few of the MLAs we interviewed for this podcast seemed like they wanted to do when they got elected to government, and the job that nobody else, nobody but those elected MLAs, can do. That's the work that can only happen in the legislature, the creation of law. Walter Bagot was a 19th century philosopher. He wrote about the British Parliament at Westminster, which is the grandfather of all parliaments in the British Commonwealth. The Nova Scotia legislature is an early descendant of the British Parliament, and is similar both in function and in form. It was Charles Dickens who said that looking at the Nova Scotia House of Assembly was like looking at Westminster through the wrong end of a telescope. Bagot's ideas are still generally regarded as guides for Parliament and legislatures around the world. One set of ideas that Bagot outlined was the five functions of a Parliament, or legislature in our case. Here they are. First, it must elect a ministry well. That is to say that the cabinet and the head of government, premier in our case, must have the confidence of the house. Second, they must legislate well. Third, they must teach the nation well. Fourth, they must express the nation's will well. And fifth, they must bring matters to the nation's attention well. When Bagot wrote about the five functions of a parliament, he was writing about the legislature as a whole, but by extension, these functions would also have to be part of the MLA's role as well, in order for the whole legislature to function well. When we spoke with ex-MLAs, we also heard about two other roles held by them outside of the legislature. First was the solving of problems that constituents come to their MLAs with. In reality, it all comes back to the, the MLA to, you know, to find a solution for somebody. Oh, there were mainly issues about their constituents had a problem. What could you do to help solve it? And the second role was showing up places and making people and groups feel like they mattered. I have some of that sort of symbolic affirming capacity. It's that kind of underlined in capital letters as an MLA. It's a greater power. It's a big joy. I still had to go to all the little duties and <laughs> the tea parties and show up at the opening of this and that. And I mean, it's a huge job with a lot of time taken up, no matter what you find the time. This week, we focus on the tangible elements of the job that only an MLA can do, and specifically the role of legislating. That means introducing new legislation, amending existing legislation, scrutinizing legislative proposals, and voting on legislation proposed by other MLAs and the government. Legislating is something that can only happen in the legislature. The legislature, at its best, could be our public square. It's a space where elected members are legally empowered to speak freely. They can't be sued for libel or anything else by powerful and wealthy interests for something they say in the legislature. The promises and speeches made by MLAs are written down word for word in the Hansard record so that they can later be held account for those words. 
Each of us, every member of the public, has the right and opportunity to observe the debates that happen in the legislature. You can do that online or sit in the gallery when the House or its committees are in session. The legislature is one of the few windows that government offers to how decisions in government in Nova Scotia are actually made. When MLAs prioritize their role as lawmakers, our governments are held accountable for their actions, and MLAs are able to propose ideas that are given the opportunity to be debated and voted on. The public can see what is happening through the written answered and the recorded proceedings instead of having to guess about the kind of decision-making happening inside the black box of cabinet or the premier's office. That's what the legislature could be at its best, but based on our conversations with former MLAs and our own observations of what happens in the legislature, that's not how most MLAs allocated their time. When it came to how MLAs spent their time, the former politicians we spoke with responded mainly to voter demands, and for voters, the issues they came to their politicians with weren't necessarily ones that demanded a legislated solution. Didn't get a lot of that. I mean, you get that at the hockey games, Saturday night, say, I think the, <laughs> you know, that stinks or should be changed. But no, not too many people came into the office, unless they had a direct complaint about some particular issue. You didn't get too many people come in and I just want to share these ideas with you. You ain't getting a lot of that. Instead, MLAs focused on issues that were local and personal to the constituents that came to them. Former Progressive Conservative MLA and former Speaker of the House, Art Donahue, outlines his understanding of the role of legislating as an MLA and some of the challenges to holding it. Another function of the legislature is oversight of what the government is doing. And that's mainly the role of the opposition, but not totally. The government backbenchers can act as an influence on what the government will present to the legislature. To me, the unfortunate thing is that most people do not understand that those are the roles of the legislature. And there is huge confusion between the government of the day and the legislature. And people will, if they disagree with a government policy, will heap the opprobrium on the legislature. I didn't know what the word opprobrium meant when I first read it, so I will share the definition I found with you. Opprobrium is the public disgrace arising from shameful conduct. It's also the name of a death metal band from Louisiana. I think art meant the first one. And people will if they disagree with a government policy, will heap the opprobrium on the legislature. Outside of the legislature, Art says the actions of the government of the day and the actions of all members of the legislature are blurred in the eyes of the public. But inside the legislature, where politicians are aware of the subtle dynamics at play and where the lines are drawn, most MLAs did not see the legislature as an effective forum for enhancing public policy and decision-making. And did you feel it was an effective kind of forum for discussion and kind of deciding the best types of no. policy. Why? Keeps you honest is all it does. You know, the government, if you're doing something, ah, oh, shoot, you know, we do that, it's going to show up in public accounts. So, you know, they won't do that. So it does keep you honest. But as far as accomplish anything, it really doesn't. In most cases, there was little chance for MLAs to add much value by the time something got to the floor of the legislature. Everything was more or less decided already. I think that the large percentage of time that they spend on casework, does that contribute to that problem? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why do MLAs spend their time on casework so much? 
Because when you're not a cabinet minister, that is basically what you're doing all day, every day, when you're not out on the social circuit. They do it because there's nobody else to do it. There is nobody else to do that kind of advocacy work, that kind of ombudsman role. There's nobody else, so MLAs do it because if they don't do it, nobody else will. They do it because they like it, because down at the legislature, it's so hard to see sometimes what difference you're making. Like, you're just another bum in a chair down at the legislature. You vote the way you're supposed to vote, you go home. And, and, and so at the legislature, it's hard sometimes to put your finger on what difference you're making. What are you doing that couldn't be done by somebody else sitting in the same chair? Down at the legislature, you realize pretty fast that things go exactly the same whether you read the bills or not, right? You're still going to vote the same way because that's the way your party's going to vote. It's somebody else's responsibility to look after the content. On the government side, it's the minister's responsibility. On the opposition side, it's the leader and the critic's responsibility. So if you're the critic, you're going to read the bill, or at least you're going to get a staff person to read the bill for you. But otherwise, why would you? According to Graham Steele, the reason more people don't focus on the legislative side of their job is because of a combination of carrot-and-stick incentives. In the constituency, there's a big carrot— the chance to see the impact of what you're doing as an MLA and how it helps people. In the legislature, it's very difficult to see what changes you might actually be making. But back at the constituency office, when you fix somebody's problem, it makes you feel good. You've helped somebody. You've done a good thing. And that becomes kind of addictive after a while, where that becomes the meaning that MLAs find in their jobs. Leonard Prera, another NDP ex-MLA from the Halifax area, put it this way. It's, it's, it's like climbing a greasy pole, you know, it's pushing this rock up the hill. If it happens, it happens because a lot of people had a hand in it. But I got a lot accomplished in terms of private member stuff when I was in opposition, and uh, uh, largely because I think, you know, we were in a minority, minority setting, and the government was trying desperately to survive. Leonard Pereira has an interesting experience. He was nominated to run for the NDP in a 2006 by-election. He didn't win the by-election, but he didn't lose either. Partway through the by-election campaign, a general election was called. So I won in a general election, but probably as long a campaign as this current one. Much longer, I think, because I had two campaigns. He sat in the NDP opposition caucus for three years, opposite Rodney McDonald's progressive conservative government. They were a minority government. He would eventually be appointed to cabinet late in the term of the NDP government, well after their party came to power in 2009. But initially, he stayed on the back benches, or at least what most of us thought was the back benches. What was that shift in moving from the back bench in the caucus of the government and then into the cabinet? Well, see, I was in an unusual situation, and it's not, it's not something that was uh, common knowledge at the time. It was not something that was normal at the time. But I was, uh, I was ministerial assistant for immigration, and so my principal job was to draft the immigration strategy that was eventually introduced. So I had a very specific, direct uh, responsibility there that I worked with, you know, the, the ministers responsible. You know, the premier made it very clear that I was supposed to, to lead that process and come up with uh, recommendations. And I also sat on Treasury Board, which was, you know, the, the money sort of wing. Before being cabinet Before cabinet minister. And you, were, you were the only one that wasn't a cabinet minister? Yes. And I was also on the, on the cabinet committee on legislation. 
and eventually chaired that committee. So when it comes to understanding how MLAs can have influence on legislation, Leonard has been in a variety of different places, on the opposition benches, on the government backbenches, sort of, and eventually he ended up in cabinet. For this reason, and because Leonard was very open about how the process worked for him, and a lot of the political considerations involved, we'll share a bit about his perspective on the lawmaking process now. We'll start by exploring the most basic question of how an MLA can get a piece of legislation onto the floor of the House. He talks first about how this might have looked under a minority government, when you would need at least two parties MLAs to get behind a bill. I mean, uh, if you go through the order paper at any given time, there are hundreds of, of bills in there that uh, members of the legislature put in there. Uh, about 99% of them are not going to see the light of day. But, you know, if you're an effective MLA, you know, you, you talk to your caucus colleagues, you talk to your house leaders, you talk to uh, people on the street, you talk to interest groups, and you tell them what you're trying to do. And they will often say... That's a good thing. And so if you can get an influential person or group to say this bill needs to pass, um, then, you know, a government in a minority situation will look at it and say, you know, we hate this bill. It's not, we don't want it. But if we do this, this, this budget might pass, so we might get another measure passed. And so you throw it in like the bag of hockey pucks into the, into the hockey deals. And sometimes that happens, or in other cases, something happens, a public event happens that, that focuses attention on it, and they say, okay, you know, well, we need to do something uh, about this. But it's, uh, any negotiation would take place between the House leaders. You know, the, the MLAs don't really get involved in, in those types of negotiations. The only negotiating you do is with your own party caucus. Next, I asked Leonard about how the legislature works as a body for refining and improving legislation, seeing that most legislation arrives at the legislature more or less fully cooked, with few opportunities for changes or amendments. Oh, the legislature is not a, a body that's, uh, that has the capacity to actually make legislation. The legislature, at best, can respond to legislation that the government is proposing. And a good legislature uh, will scrutinize that legislation carefully and bring it to the public attention and make you know, constructive changes or defeat it. But the uh, initiative really rests with the government. And uh, I, I think people who expect otherwise are expecting too much. You know, I, I, when you say the legislature, you're talking about the opposition in this case, you know, the effectiveness of the opposition. Opposition or even I mean, looking at the legislature as a whole in the sense that if it's coming from government, it's probably not coming from the back bench. Oh, I wouldn't assume that. This is where the conversation got interesting. Leonard speaks about his experience with legislating as a government MLA. It's important to recognize here that Leonard's perspective is markedly different from the perspective of others within his own party. We'll share some of their perspectives later, but for now, it's worth remembering that Leonard wasn't like other backbenchers. He wasn't appointed to cabinet right away, but he was handed assignments from the premier to assist ministers in drafting things like immigration strategies shortly after the NDP came to power. Are there pieces of legislation that would have come forward from the backbench in your time? Oh, yeah. Beyond, uh, like, a private member. Uh, really yeah, I mean, I... Uh... I, I chaired the, the Cabinet Committee on Legislation, and I sat on Treasury Board. And uh, the discussions that go on on those committees and the discussions that go on in caucus are pretty vigorous. 
the differences of opinion within the NDP caucus were far more significant than the differences of opinion across the floor. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, the the Liberal uh, caucus in, in particular was a pretty homogenous group of people. There really wasn't that much of a difference of opinion between them, and they went, whatever they had was not that well thought out. But you know, in the NDP caucus, we had four or five different sets of values. And, you know, people coming at it from different directions. I mean. And I think any any government party where you have a lot of members would be like that, hmm. where you would have, you know, various strands of the party uh, represented, and that you know that happens at the caucus uh, at the caucus table, and and they would, uh, you know, at, at at caucus meetings, at caucus retreats, uh, talk about what uh, what they would like to see in uh, in government bills. I mean, they would not have uh, you know dot the i's and cross the t's on it, but they would say. Mm-hmm. What kind of, what those matters? Or what kind of ideas would come from caucus? Well, I'll give you my uh, own example. I uh, I thought uh, that uh, we need to create more uh, more green spaces. You know that we need to protect more more land, and you know the, the creation of the Sable Island Provincial Park, for example, was a way of, of signaling that we were going to preserve 12% of land as green space, mm-hmm. and we passed an, a, lots of legislation relating to that. There were lots of people in caucus who were concerned about energy and moving to alternative energy. Uh, the whole, you know, Muskrat Falls, Tidal, uh, the Comfit, the Wind, they're all part of that complex of ideas that said we need to wean ourselves off dirty mm-hmm. energy. You're saying that came primarily from caucus? There was a lot of support in caucus uh, for that. Now the, the, the actual are coming from caucus. Those are the things if the government brings forward something with the cabinet versus Well, let's see, it doesn't exactly, what I was saying earlier, it, nobody can put a finger on to say this is mine. So you're sitting around the table and, uh, you know, someone is standing there with a flip chart. I know it's old technology. And they're talking, you know, I say to you, Mark, what would you like As to As Leonard sees it, sometimes issues emerge from caucus and cabinet ends up acting on them, perhaps just not in the way that some caucus members initially imagined. People make a mistake in saying, well, you know, the Dexter government or the Premier's office did that. And it's true. Final product came out of that. But the actual process that led to it was uh, very much, uh, if not caucus-driven, certainly driven by an MLA or a constituent or a constituency issue. And really, most of the time, the media picks up on that rather than the, you know, the government picking up on the media. But Leonard's experience wasn't universal, far from universal. Gary Burrell was an NDP MLA who sat in the same caucus as Leonard during the period the NDP were in power. When we spoke with Gary, he was an ex-MLA who once represented the district of Guysboro. He has since been elected as the leader of the NDP, and in the May 2017 election, he was elected in the riding of Halifax, Shibukto. Gary's agenda has long been an anti-poverty agenda, so as a backbencher, he tried to advance the kind of bills that would support that agenda. So the actual process is... These initiatives go before something called a legislation committee. And that's a government committee of cabinet people and backbench people. So no piece of legislation comes forward unless it goes through this legislation committee. So you would bring the matter through the legislation committee. And the first thing that happens is it is referred to the department. Well, in my experience, this just meant that it would die. So you would say, geez, you know, some months have gone by. I haven't heard from my proposal. Like, does not our legislation committee take seriously enough an MLA's legislative proposal that there would be some time constraint on what the department... Uh, it would be an effort to then get a departmental response, and, and the departmental response would be negative. Of course it would. If they had thought it was a good idea, they would have done it themselves. So then where do you go? 
well, it's not a matter of persuading the legislation committee because you have to persuade the minister. Well, the minister, by and large, if the minister experiences themselves as an object, not as a political subject, is not in the business of bringing forward proposals. They're really in the business of enacting their part of the agenda from the leader's office. So this conversation might move forward, but it might just kind of grind gears. And that's kind of what happens. So what's your next move? Well, you could take it to the caucus. So you take it to the caucus. You say, so there's this proposal. It uh, kind of died in the department. They were negative about it. The minister is... You know, there's no kind of ministerial initiative to bring it forward. And yet, as an MLA, I think it's really important. I want to present this to you. So some people in the caucus will say, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, crap, yeah. And others will say, well, whatever, and you'll have a debate. But the critical thing to remember is, uh, about the way this actually works, it's not like there's some threshold of persuasion you must meet, and if you meet it, you've won. In fact, you could actually have everybody in the room say, oh, yeah, that's great. But then it's, thank you very much, Gary. That was really nice. And what's what's the next thing? Because, in fact, matters only advance if they come from the political subject of the sentence, which is the leader's office. Gary wasn't so much frustrated that he didn't get his way. He was frustrated that even when his colleagues liked his proposals, it never went anywhere. The response to him proposing legislation within caucus was a vague rejection without much explanation. I have a file drawer full of proposals that I advanced, and sometimes with other MLAs, sometimes by myself, that I never felt our government kind of looked at and said, Gary, you know, here's what we have a problem with that for this reason and that reason, and uh, we're not going to do it. It's essentially that I was never able to advance it to that level of sharpness. It's kind of like cleaning up soot. It's just just kind of smush and mush. And I think this is extremely unhealthy. I think it's, uh, it probably does not encourage the kind of people we would wish to have in politics come forward. Gary's conclusion is markedly different from Leonard Prairis. Leonard saw caucus as being a place where legislative ideas and proposals were generated from. And Gary saw caucus as one of the places those ideas went to die. Although they seem to agree on one thing. It's, it's like climbing a greasy pole, you know, it's pushing this rock up the hill. It's kind of like cleaning up soot. It's just, it's just kind of smush and mush. The process of getting a bill through the House is not a simple one. In writing this episode, we became aware of a few things. Most of the MLAs who had something to say about this were men. But then again, most of the people who have been MLAs were men. Remember that there were more MLAs named John before Confederation than there have been women MLAs in the entire history of the province. Most of the people who had something to say about their own experience attempting to get legislation through the House were members of the NDP. Now, perhaps we could have been more assertive in asking questions related to this topic in our interviews with MLAs from other parties and with female MLAs, but my sense of things, based on all the conversations I had and other members of the Oscar team had, was this. The notion of lawmaking, of participating in the public debate in the legislature, and scrutinizing laws presented by the government and other MLAs simply isn't the primary focus of most MLAs' work, whether they're inside or outside of government. If an MLA is part of the governing party, particularly for backbench MLAs, they tend to trust and support their leadership, or at least they know their place in the pecking order of the party and understand the futility in getting too involved in legislating, and the dangers for their own careers. If they're not part of the governing party and it's a majority government, they're not even in the pecking order. If an MLA is a critic, they'll make noise about an issue when it is presented by government, and they'll present bills that outline their own party's stance. But that is mostly for show. It's not going to pass. 
It's unlikely that they will devote much of their time to initiating new legislation in the hopes that the idea will be entertained by members of the governing party. It's just not what happens. Now, if they're not a part of the governing party and it's a minority government, then the game has changed. The change, however, really only affects the opposition party leaders and house leaders who are now a part of the pecking order. The party's leader or house leader needs to get behind an MLA's private member's bill in order for it to get the attention it needs to be taken seriously on the house floor. But if an MLA has a problem with a bill from another party or their own that the house leader has decided to support with another party leader and chooses to express that in the house, some serious shade will be thrown in that MLA's direction. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript Podcast. This week's episode was written by me, Mark Coffin, with editing and research by Louise Cochram. Sound production was by a new member of the Offscript team, Lottie George. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Just search On The Record Offscript in whatever platform you listen to podcasts in, or head over to offscript.ca and stream the podcast straight from the web. If you listen to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, it would mean a great deal to us if you could head over to this podcast page in Apple Podcasts and give the podcast a rating. And as always, we encourage you to sign up to be a monthly donor to support this podcast. You can donate for as little as $3, $5, or $8 a month. And thank you to all of you who have already contributed. See you next week. Thank you.